Thank you, Ed. Let me invite you now to get your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 25. Um, as you're turning there, just, uh, uh, just want to say thank you for all the, the men that came out to the Simeon Trust workshop um, on Friday night and Saturday. We had a great time together, and um, we are looking forward to continuing just the, the, the training and that kind of equipping stuff uh, further in the year, in particular for ladies. We're looking to do that, too. And, um, you know, ask one of the guys that went, ask them what, what God taught them, what he showed them, and the impact that it had on them. Um, and I'm sure that you'll be encouraged. Well, Exodus 25, let's stand together, and we're going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll see what the Lord has for us today. Exodus chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. It shall make an ark of acacia wood, two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the faces of the cherubim. Be. You shall, so overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings their faces uh, one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You shall make a table of acacia wood, Two cubits shall be its length, and a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with gold, pure gold, and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. 
and you shall make it for four, make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners of its four legs. Close to the frame the ring shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls which, with which to pour drink offerings. You shall make them of pure gold and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, its, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out of the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on, the, on one branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand. And on the lampstand itself, there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out from the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it. The whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light in the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Let's pray. Lord, we come now to this wonderful, incredible, majestic, beautiful description of your dwelling place. And Lord, although these might be tedious instructions for us as readers, they are glorious revelations of yourself. And Lord, you want us to see you on display. And so this morning, we ask that you give us hearts that are eager to listen, to hear, and to learn and to grow. And Lord, what we know not would you teach us. What we have not, Lord, would you give us. What we are not, Lord, would you make us. And Lord, would you do all that by the power of your Holy Spirit through what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. And would you allow me as your messenger to be faithful, to proclaim your truth as it is revealed for your people. We ask this in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When we started our series in the book of Exodus, I mentioned to you that the book of Exodus has three overarching movements. And I'd like for us just to remind ourselves of what those movements are because we're beginning another movement in the book of Exodus. These movements are places where God seeks to make himself known. And God, first of all, is known through his providence. That's chapters 1 through 18. And, and in that section of scripture is where we find God saving and delivering Israel from bondage. Much of that section is narrative. It's the story of Israel's 
deliverance. God is also then known through his precepts, chapter 19 through 24, where God speaks and makes demands that his people Israel listen to and obey his words. And we've just finished walking our way through the Ten Commandments and the, the case law that accompanies it, finishing up with the covenant that Israel made with God. And now there's this third section. God is known through his presence where God settles and delights to dwell among his people. And so this morning, as we begin this last section where God comes and, and settles uh, and dwells among his people, we, we, we want to be thinking afresh about what God is doing. If you remember, last week we asked the question, how can we possibly approach such a holy God and not die? And now, to our amazement, this same very holy God, this distant God, because of his holiness, says, I want to dwell in the midst of my people. Now, friends, that should shock us, but it doesn't because we're so familiar with the fact that God seeks to dwell with us. But just think about the reality of that. The creator of the universe, magnificent in glory, beauty and holiness, wants to condescend and meet with his people to dwell in their midst. And friends, that should be the shock and awe of what we read. And it certainly is what we read at the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. And here's what it says. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Of course, the word dwelt is the word tabernacled, right? He pitched his tent among us. God enfleshed in Jesus Christ. And, and the one to whom the tabernacle points us as God dwelling in their midst is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true meeting place of God with men in whom alone and through whom alone we have access to the Father. And friends, this is what Jesus meant when he says, no one comes to the Father but through me. He was saying, I am the true meeting place the only meeting place where you can know God. And so, friends, the tabernacle, also known as the sanctuary, also known as the meeting place, preaches Christ to us. Now, one pastor, I think very helpfully, describes the next few chapters as God's pop-up book, where each of the items of the tabernacle furniture are designed to help us grasp the storyline of redeeming grace. Just as you see these different objects, they're, they're not just thrown in there kind of haphazardly. There's purpose and meaning in them that actually is pregnant with meaning that, that, that splashes throughout the rest of Scripture. It's amazing as we've gone through the book of Exodus how important this book is to understand the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New Testament. So in the next number of chapters, here's what we're going to encounter. 
The ark, the table, the lampstand, the altar, the bronze basin, the tabernacle with all its curtains and clasps and frames and bars and veils and screens, and the priests who will serve in that tabernacle. And God will give us a picture and a reminder of who he is. Now, if you remember, as we began our time in Exodus, we, we turned to a number of passages. We turned to Exodus chapter 14 and verses 17 and 18. Here's what it says. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And then in chapter 29, in verse 43 and following, here's what it says. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God. So God is saying, Egypt's going to know who I am, and my people are going to know who I am. And then in chapter 33, we find Moses having this encounter with God. And even there, this is what he says, Now therefore, I have found if I found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. So God wants Moses now even to know who he is. And that's been ongoing through the story. And ultimately, God wants the nations to know who he is. Now listen to this, the psalm, uh, the psalmist reflect over this season in Israel's history. Psalm 106, verses 6 through 8. Both we and our fathers have sinned, we've committed iniquity, we've done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works, they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his own namesake, that he might make, his, uh, make known his mighty power. So friends, this is the theme of the book, that God would make himself known. And as we come to chapter 25, and as we think about what God is doing in these chapters here, Here's the proposition for today. God comes to make himself known through the building of the tabernacle and its furniture. God wants us to see him. Now think, when I say God, don't think God the Father. Think the triune God. God is revealing himself through the tabernacle and through its Furniture, And today, for the most part, we're going to focus in on the furniture, at least the priority uh, furniture that he is going to reveal. And so as we jump into this chapter, there's going to be five priorities that we're going to look at that are going to show us how God seeks to dwell with us. Now, the first two priorities are introductory. They're, they're, they're setting the stage for the construction of the tabernacle and of its different furniture. The last three, however, will lead us directly to Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but it's been over 15 years since I went shopping for a house. Now, you know what it's like shopping for a house, right? There's a lot of things you're considering, but I remember as we went through all sorts of different homes, there were some homes we went into, and 
I'm, I'm looking around and I'm walking out and I'm saying to my wife, I don't know who's going to buy this house. I mean, everything in this house was weird and quirky, like no one really thought through the flow of traffic and how all these things fit together. I don't know what was going on there. But someone probably will. And if they were to do it, they'd have to probably break out a wall or redo a bathroom or all that kind of stuff, right? Now, friends, if we're looking for a home, we're asking certain questions, aren't we? Where is the home located, right? Location, location, location. Is the home constructed well? How many bedrooms does it have? How many bathrooms? Does the master bedroom have its own master bathroom? I think that's actually one of the top priorities. Is there a dining room, a family room, a living room? What's the kitchen like? Is, is it roomy enough? Does, does it need an overhaul? What's the lighting like? Does the home come with a garage? If so, what size? What are the neighbors like? Have you thought about that one? Is there an extra housing association fee that somehow isn't being disclosed here? Well, in this passage, friends, God is looking to dwell on earth. But it's to be a very special dwelling place, built according to his specifications with specific materials. And there are five priorities that are driving this chapter, this chapter to seek to reveal God to make him known. First of all, we want to think about the priority of God's possessions. God's possessions. Seeing now through the contributions that he is inviting the people to give. He's requesting these contributions he begins his instructions for the dwelling place by inviting every man to consider making a contribution from the goods and possessions that they have. And if you notice, this is an offering determined by the, 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 the movement of a person's heart. He's putting it on them. He's not putting any stipulations on what he's saying except to say, what are you going to give? But he does expect them to make a contribution. So it is certainly requested. Now, what are the, the materials that he's requesting? He lists all these materials. Metals, fabrics, animal skins, wood, oil, and spices. Now, we can pass over this so quickly, can't we? How is it that God is asking this former enslaved people to come up with all this stuff. I mean, it's not like they had an Ikea out in the wilderness. Where would they have had time to mine gold and silver and bronze? How would they have reaped the harvest or even shared their cattle in order to have the yarns or the linen? When would they have been able to, to dye the garments blue or purple or scarlet? How were they able to get the oil for the lamps or the spices? The only thing we might say is that they could have found some stones in the wilderness. And friends, it's a window into how lavish Israel's plundering was of the Egyptians when they left their bondage in Egypt. The plundering wasn't just for their survival, although they didn't know that then. The plundering was also for the sanctuary where God would dwell in the midst 
of his people. And so God is coming to his people, saying, I have blessed you with an abundance of possessions. Now, here's what I need. What will you give? And so this is the purpose. Look, if you would, at verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God had things well in hand before Israel even left out of Egypt. I'm saying in hand for the building of his dwelling place. He's orchestrating all of this, isn't he? And friends, God blesses his contemporary church through the willful contribution of his people. No government grants are flowing through our finances here. Our church is not backed by some business endeavor. It's simply the faithful contributions of God's people who are committed to God's cause through through the church. And we're not called to give an Old Testament tithe, if you're wondering if that's the case. If we were to put that weight on you, then we would be asking you to give 23.5% of your resources. Why? Because there were three ties that God instituted in his law. Two of those ties happened every year. One of those ties happened every three years. So that's 23.5%. And you thought our governor was pushing for a lot of taxes. But when we get to the New Testament, God is calling on his people to give out of the abundance of what he has lavished them with. You say, well, I worked hard to get that. Yeah, you worked hard to get that, and you should. But don't you realize that that is all part of God's provision? And God is simply asking you to contribute out of that provision and to do it as God would move your heart. And certainly, I think that that 10% figure is probably a good place to to seek to land or to to shoot for. And I want to be careful here. I'm not saying this because Gateway Family, in any way, shape, or form right now, is in any financial crisis. In fact, you have been incredibly faithful during this season. Many churches, their finances have dropped considerably during COVID. Not our church. (laughs) You guys have been faithful. You've been consistent in your giving. So, So hear this. This is not an appeal for you to give rightly because we're struggling. This is an appeal to give rightly because it is for the Lord and his work. So wherever you go, if God takes you out of Gateway and takes you to, I don't know, to Arkansas, to a church there, serve God faithfully, giving out of your abundance. That's just what God's people do. So this is God's possessions. It's, they're his possessions, and he's entrusted them to us, and he's asking us now to give out of that abundance. That's what he was doing here with Israel. Secondly, I want you to notice God's plan God's plan. And look at verse 9. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Well, what is this sanctuary going to look like? Well, notice that the word here, pattern, is used in verse 9. And it's emphasized not just here, but also in the surrounding text. There's four very similar statements here. Look again, look at verse 9. Exactly as I show you according to the pattern of the tabernacle, and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Look at chapter 25, verse 40. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. Then chapter 26. 
and verse 30. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And then chapter 27 and verse 8, you shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. Isn't it incredible? God's saying, look, I have a pattern for all this stuff. I have a plan. He's emphasizing that in what he's saying. Now, why this stress on the pattern? Why can't Israel make the tabernacle according to their culture or the the religions around them? Why stress that the details uh, uh, to do it as God had revealed it to them? Why, Why this emphasis? Why is this needed, we would say? Well, here's three reasons. Reason number one, man is a natural idolater and prone to offend God. Now, I'm not talking about people out there. I'm talking about people in here, and I'm talking about this person here. We are natural idolaters, and we're prone to offend God. How often do we see in Scripture God expressing his concern about idolatry. Numerous times, God warns Israel about Baal worship. He warns Israel about the foreign gods in the high places. See, God has a principal concern that he be worshipped as God alone. And he's detailed, uh, he has a detailed understanding of our hearts and how we work. And he knows that our hearts are prone to create other gods or to worship the true God in a false way. And think that we're doing it right. And so we need a pattern. We need a plan that's laid out for us. This is why at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, there are two commandments that have to do with our worship of God. And that's why he keeps reminding Israel, even in our context here, don't worship among the pagans. Don't let them influence you religiously. And don't let them live in the land. If you do... They will be a snare to you. So God's pattern is needed. Secondly, not only is it because we are prone to idolatry. Secondly, man is a creature and God is the creator. The truth of the matter is, friends, that we are prone to forget our place. Why shouldn't God tell us what it should look like? He is God for crying out loud. We are his creation. He has the right to say this is what it should look like. But we would rather be God and do things our way, and get this, and have God endorse it. Rather than bring ourselves under his guidance and word. We need to remember, friends, that he is the potter and we are the clay. Now, the society around us that wants to somehow have kind of Christian principles and and kind of float under the umbrella of Christianity wants to create a religion formed and shaped by man where they're going to welcome God into as long as he conforms to what they want it to look like. That's not God's pattern. And God's saying, when you come and you establish this tabernacle and you put these pieces of furniture together, There's a way to do it, and it's according to what I say. 
The third thing is this. Beauty matters to God. Psalm 29 and verse 2. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness, in the, the beauty of his holiness. Psalm 96 verse 6. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. I mean, if we could actually walk in physically and see this, we would be overwhelmed by the splendor and the beauty of this place. Psalm 96, verse 9. Worship the Lord in splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Beauty, splendor, majesty. They're not an afterthought of God. All the details, the garments and the colors are, are all about the beauty and the majesty and the greatness and the glory of God. There should never be ugly worship of God. My friends, God has always been careful and particular that his people follow his pattern. And as verse 9 tells us, he wants us to follow his pattern. How? Exactly. See that there? In other words, according to the pattern. So this is the true of the building of the tabernacle, but friends, this is also true uh, as to how we gather for worship. We are regulated in our worship by what God reveals in his word. The same is true in how we are to live. So we say, God, show us how you want me to live. And our responsibility is to seek, to pursue what he's laying out as the pattern exactly. Not in a legalistic way, but in a way that says, God, I want to conform. I want to demonstrate my allegiance to you by saying, you know what's best, so I'm going to do it. It should drive our worship. It should drive our living. And we should always be thankful that God keeps revealing his pattern to us through his word as we open it up and as we study it. There are things that we still have yet to discover that are part of God's pattern for us. So, his possessions are a priority. His pattern is a priority. These are introductory, I want to say, tools or anchors that help us now as we get into the furniture and the priority furniture that he lists here, because we, we have these pieces of furniture on the front end of the description, because they're important to God. So let's now move from possessions and plan to God's purity. And we're going to hang our hat on this one a little bit longer than the others, because this is the heart of the tabernacle. This is what is placed in the most holy place. It is the Ark of the Covenant. Now the word Ark is simply an old English word that means box. So Noah's Ark is simply a large box-shaped boat, we know it, right? In verse 10 we're told this Ark was to be built with acacia wood and its dimensions were uh, to, to work out to about three feet, nine inches long, by two feet, six inches wide, as well as deep. In verse 11, we're told that it was to be completely encased with gold. So it was an item of extraordinary beauty. 
an incredible work. In verses 12 through 15, we read the instructions about the four rings and the two poles of gold that were to be fed through the rings so that it could be carried in such a manner when it had to be moved, but carried in such a manner that no human hands would have to touch it. In verse 16, we read about what was to be put inside the ark. It's called the testimony. And of course, that testimony would be the law of God, the Ten Commandments, the case law that's put in this Ark of the Covenant. That's why it's called the Ark of the Testimony, okay, based on what's contained in it. Let's just put all this together. The Ark contains the law of God. It is covered with beautiful decoration, poles that allow it to be carried yet never touched, And all that speaks to us, friends, of holiness. It speaks to us of purity. The law of God, it is holy. No one can touch it. So this is an object marked by and signifying the purity and the holiness of God. It's a sacred object that represents the presence of God and his holiness and purity as a lawgiver and as a judge. Now, I want you to do something right now. I know some of you have phones you're following along with and iPads and stuff like that, but if you have a Bible or maybe even the one that's in the pew in front of you, open it up to the title page. I have an English Standard Version here. The title page is not where it says presented to and all that kind of stuff. It's a little further in there. But you'll notice it says, in mine, this is the English Standard Version, and the title page, it says, The Holy Bible. English Standard Version containing the Old and New Testaments. Now, friends, let us not forget that this is God's holy word. It's holy. It's set apart. It is like nothing else. Now, certainly what we have being put in the Ark of the Covenant is the Ten Commandments and the case law, which we say is the seed form of God's canonized word that we now see with the Old and New Testaments that we have in our possession. But this is his holy word. It's a gift to us. We don't deserve to have it. Now, we don't worship the Bible, but we worship the God who breathed out his word for our benefit. It's a precious gift. But here, at the founding of God's new nation, the original copy of the law of God was to be placed into the Ark of the Covenant. And it's holy. And friends, the holiness and purity of the Ark of the Covenant must be maintained by Israel. And remember in 1 Samuel, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines. And they had it for a while, and all these crazy things were happening. I mean, they were breaking out and all sorts of tumors and stuff like that. And although they thought they had the prize of Israel, because they did, they did not know what they had. And because they were you know, pragmatic and they didn't want to do things God's way, didn't even know what God had revealed, they decided they were going to transport this Ark of the Covenant on a cart pulled by oxen. And eventually Israel would get it back. In fact, The Philistines would say, come back and take it, if you would, please. Israel finally gets it back. And then, a little later in the story, years later, David, who's king of Israel, after a great battle where he listens to God and defeats the Philistines once again, 
He's returning to Jerusalem victorious. And, and the men are bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, but they're bringing it on a cart, just like the Philistines used to do. And as the people are celebrating with harps and tambourines and cymbals, it was a wonderful day of celebration for Israel. They came to the threshing floor of Nacon, and the, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark. You say, and it was well-intended, and I'm sure it was well-intended out of his, his probably respect for the Ark of the Covenant. But the moment he did that, God struck him dead. This is what it says in 2 Samuel 6, verse 6. Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. And God's judgment broke out against him, and he died. Yeah, but didn't God look at his intentions? His intentions were irrelevant. This was his ark. This was holy. This was sacred. This was set apart. And you were not to touch it. Don't touch the Ark of the Covenant. It represents the blazing holiness and purity of God. Now, on this ark is a mercy seat. All right, so you've got this box now covered with gold, beautiful rings and poles. And on top of that, Israel was to make this mercy seat, this covering of pure gold, this, the length and, and, and the width, the, the same as the ark of the covenant, sitting on top of it of pure gold. And either end facing each other were the, 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 these, these cherubim, and they had their wings out to cover and overshadow this mercy seat. All of this was to be made as one piece of gold, beaten into shape. Now, the last time cherubim are mentioned in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. And you remember what they're doing there. What they're doing is that they are, they are there as guardians of the Garden of Eden because God had driven out man from the garden. And he had placed these cherubim there to guard the way to the tree of life, to guard the way to the presence of God. So the cherubim are functioning as guardians of this place of fellowship between God and man, which is precisely the role that takes place here with the mercy seat. So just like Eden was the place of meeting and fellowship with God, now the mercy seat becomes the place where God meets with man. See, this is literally heaven on earth. This is where God comes down to meet with man. And we notice in verse 22 here, he says this, there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testament, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. So the purpose of the mercy seat was to be the place where God would meet and speak with man. Is it any wonder that the mercy seat shadowed by two cherubim and situated on top of the ark of the covenant is the first item to be dealt with by God as he gives instructions for his furniture. This is the heart. This is the focal point of the tabernacle. And incidentally, elsewhere in scripture, we see cherubim supporting and surrounding the throne of God. 
Psalm 99 verse 1 says this, The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the, cherub, uh, upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. 2 Kings chapter 19 verse 15 says, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. And in 1 Chronicles chapter 13 verse 6 we read, And David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is, to Kirith Jerim, that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim. So what we have here is the symbolic throne of God on earth, where he dwells and meets and speaks with his people. And although we haven't arrived there yet, this ark of the covenant with its mercy seat shadowed by these two cherubim will reside in the most holy place. There's really three sections to the tabernacle. There's the, the inner court, there's the holy place, and there's the most holy place. Now friends, the only person that could enter the most holy place and come before the Ark of the Covenant was the high priest. And he could only do that once a year and only on the Day of Atonement to make atonement, to offer the blood of the sacrifice on the altar for the sin of Israel, to make atonement. The word atonement means to cover, to pacify, to appease. So the yearly atonement for Israel was given to pacify God's righteous wrath against sin. That was his job. And let me remind you what we just experienced in chapter 24, where Israel gathered together and Moses, as the mediator, establishes this covenant between God and his people through blood. And what does he do? He takes the blood of the sacrifice and he splashes the people and he splashes the altar. It's the same thing that is happening here and will happen here when this tabernacle is finally built. This will be the place where the blood is applied to the mercy seat, to the throne of God. Now, friends, what should strike us as we read this section what is screaming at us as we consider these instructions from God is this. It is holiness. It is purity. It is exclusion. The law condemns everyone who breaks its statutes. Gold speaks of royal splendor and majesty, which is not who we are. The cherubim recall man's exclusion from the presence of Edom. The mercy seat being the earthly throne of God shut off uh, from view by the wings of the angels, it's too pure, it's too holy, it's too exclusive, but it is where God dwells. Yet, it is to this mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant where God comes to dwell so that he can meet with his people, but ultimately when Christ died on the cross, something incredible happened that it would have an, an everlasting effect on God's people. We read about it in Matthew's Gospel. In particular, Matthew 27 and verses 50 and 51, listen, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is when he dies. And behold, the curtain of the temple, and you can read in there, tabernacle, was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. 
The curtain or the veil of the temple, it's the veil found in the tabernacle that separates the most holy place, which is where God dwells, from the rest of the tabernacle, which is where men dwell. And that curtain, that veil, is torn in two. So where once we were kept out of the most holy place, separated by a curtain or a veil, now, through Christ, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. And we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 19 and following, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, talking here about the most holy place, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. You see how this is all connected here? It is because of Christ that we now can enter this presence and commune with God. God's purity. And just think about the fact that for Israel, he was distant. For us, he is very near. We move then from God's possessions, God's plan, God's purity, now to God's provision. After the ark, we, the, Israel is to make a table. And we're given the details of the table here in verses 23 and following to be made of acacia wood, but slightly smaller than the ark. Find that in verse 23. One of the differences that between the two is that the, the table is supposed to have a rim, presumably to protect the items mentioned later from falling off. It was also to be covered in gold and had four rings and two poles for the transportation, just like the Ark of the Covenant. And then notice in verse 29 that we're told that there are to be various golden vessels made for the table, plates and dishes for the incense, flagons and bowls for drink offerings. And in verse 30 we read, the bread of the presence is to be set before God on the table regularly. All those are the details, but... Let's think now about the purpose of this table. Let's try and imagine what's going on here with the help of Leviticus 23 and 24. You don't have to turn there. But on the table are, are these various golden dishes. There's a flagon, which is basically a pitcher with a lid that is filled with, um, with wine. That's what Leviticus 23 tells us. Ready to be used as a drink offering before the Lord. Then there's the bread of presence. We find in Leviticus 24 further explanation of what happens here. There are 12 loaves, each one representing each tribe of Israel, but stacked in two columns, so column of six. And once a week, the priests, part of their job was to go in and actually to consume the bread of the presence and to replace it with fresh bread. Probably this took place on the Sabbath. And the bread of the presence is there to remind the priests of God's provision for his people. So it's a way of saying that to dwell with God in your midst is to have the promise that he will supply all your needs. It's to say that God who is living among his people will make provision for his people. So now Israel had already experienced God's provision, haven't they? If you remember back in chapter 16, as they're in the wilderness and they're hungry, God provides manna from heaven, bread, 
from heaven. There was this stuff, what is it, right, from heaven. But it was the means by which Israel is sustained. And they gather the manna every day of the week, and on Friday they gather twice as much so that they don't have to gather on the Sabbath. But God is providing for his people. And of course, Jesus taught us the same promise that has been pictured here in the bread of the presence. In Matthew 6, Jesus tells us to not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. After all, the Father in heaven knows what you need before you ask him. Rather, we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to us. You see, we serve a God who promises that he will provide. And in Matthew, again, in chapter 6, a few verses back, as, he, as he's teaching the disciples how to pray, in the heart of that prayer, this is what he says. We're to lean on God by faith to give us this day our daily bread. And the Apostle Paul confidently reminds the Philippian readers that my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So friends, the bread of the presence was a reminder of the provision of God flowing from his presence to the people by grace and ultimately in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I do want us to look at John chapter 6. And if you remember in John chapter 6, Jesus is miraculously multiplying loaves and fishes to feed 5,000 people. And Jesus turns now to the people, and this is what he says to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. God provides for us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. I am what you need. So there we have God's provision. And then at the end of chapter 25, after we've looked at the possessions and the pattern, the purity and the provision, we have another P, surprisingly. And it's God's presence. And it's revealed to us through this lampstand. Verses 31 through 39, ultimately. Now, notice the details here. And it's pretty complex, really. This lampstand is to be made of pure gold, not an overlay like the ark or the table. And it is a lampstand that sits on the ground, not something that would sit on the table. That's why the picture up there, I think, is helpful, because we see how magnificent this thing is. Obviously, it's an artist's rendering of what it would be. And there's a base and a stem rising up from the base, uh, of which are three pairs of branches. On each branch reaches up, and on it, its ends are cups, which are made like almond blossoms, and a calyx. You say, what's a calyx? 
It's like a, a whirl of leaves that protects the flower. Okay? So you have these wonderful images on this. Then on each branch and the central stem, there is to be a lamp. And then a little later we read, uh, uh, you know, there's also to be these utensils, these tongs and trays that are be, to be made of gold for the use with the lamp. Now, we often think then of what traditionally has been used in, I say Judaism, the menorah, right? You've seen that picture. Um, now, of course, their, their one has kind of all the lamps level. There's nothing in here that tells us that they are necessary to be level. So, you know, in, your, in our minds, that's what we think of. It could be that they're, they're a little bit different. The point here is this is a beautiful lampstand that has these seven branches. But I want you to notice the lamp's purpose. We're told in Leviticus, Leviticus 24 that there's to be a constant supply of oil so that the lamp can always be kept burning. And then in our text, in verse 37, we're told that the lamp is to be set up as to give light. Well, I mean, that's kind of a duh statement, right? But that's the point. It's to, it's to provide light in, there, in the presence of that tabernacle. This is all a picture for us of the presence of God whose light is never extinguished. Now just listen again to a few verses. Psalm 104, verses 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light, as was a garment stretching out the heavens like a tent. You hear the language of, of tabernacle in, these, in that verse. Psalm 118, verse 27, the Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Then, of course, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, as we get to the end of the story, we have this beautiful picture of the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, and we're told there, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. He is the light, right? This light shines from God forever, shines to us most clearly in the person of Jesus. And that's why John, as he begins his gospel, he describes Jesus as the light. John 1, verses 4 and 5, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not comprehended it. And then in chapter 8, we hear from the lips of Jesus, who says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. My friends, do you see what the tabernacle and its furniture is doing for us? It is preaching Christ to us. We're all living in a dark world, and Jesus, the light of the world, has come to pierce the darkness with the gleaming hope of the gospel. That gospel light will never be extinguished no matter how dark it may seem. And then we are comforted that Jesus, our light, guides us on our path day by day. These are wonderful pictures. And these are wonderful priorities. This, this book is being opened and these pop-up images are there. And they're pointing us to the fact that Jesus is the emphasis 
and the ultimate focal point of what they are pointing to. My friends, in Exodus, God comes to dwell with Israel. In the Gospels, Jesus comes to dwell with men. Now, because of Christ, there's two things that are true as we bring things to a close here. Two concluding thoughts that I think might be helpful for us. Number one, God dwells in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think about the magnitude of that statement. And the Apostle Paul, when he, he tells us that and he speaks about that to the Corinthian church, he's speaking in the context of present immorality in the church. And he's saying, look, don't you know? <laughs> don't you know? First Corinthians 6, verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple, a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. But the, the emphasis I want you to see here is that God actually is no longer dwelling in the temple or in the tabernacle. He is dwelling in his people, in the person of the Holy Spirit. And it's helpful for us to know that the you that's being talked about here is not an individual you. It's also a collective you. He's speaking to the church. He's saying you. He dwells in you personally, individually, but also as a church. We are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has tabernacled. He's made his home in our hearts. And Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 16, when talking about idolatry, here's what he says. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. A direct quote from Exodus 29, verse 45. God dwells in ponder that how will that shape your willingness to follow his pattern not only does God dwell in us but he has prepared a place where we will dwell with him Listen to John 14, 1 through 3. We hear this a lot at a funeral because it is comforting for us. But when we see it in light of what's happening here in the revelation of the tabernacle, it just rings that much more true. God has condescended to dwell with man, but he is promising through his son that he is going to prepare a place of dwelling for us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. You see the trajectory. God's saying, I want to dwell with you. I'm holy, but this is how it's going to work. I'm going to have you build a tabernacle. And then God says, I'm going to come to you in the person of my son, Jesus Christ. 
He is Emmanuel, God with us. And then, when you die, you will enter into heaven and you will enter into a dwelling place with God that he has prepared for you to dwell in with him. Friends, this is the hope that we have. This is what is screaming through the trajectory of Scripture from the tabernacle. These are wonderful pictures that should encourage every believer. Lord, help us today. We, are, we marvel, Lord, at what we see here. And Lord, our, our goal today is not so much to go out and do something. Our goal today is to pause and be amazed at something. And in that amazement, be humbled and be thankful and be in awe. And then, Lord, to reflect and to take seriously how we then are to worship you, how we then are to live for you, how we are then to speak about you, how we are then to, uh, to, to sing. You have chosen to meet with us. You've chosen to dwell with us through the person who's son. You've chosen to reside in us who now are your children. And you promised, Lord, a dwelling, an everlasting dwelling with you in heaven. That is something, Lord, that we do not deserve. That is something, Lord, that shocks us to the core. But, Lord, may we rejoice in it. May it fuel our living. May it help us with our anxiety and loneliness and fear to know that you are very present with us. Every step of the place that we go, every time we're tempted to sin, every struggle that we might face, the obstacles we come to, Lord, you, you are there. You're with us, walking with us, guiding us, giving us a pattern, giving us a, a direction, anchoring us not only to the gospel, but to the hope that we have because of the gospel. Now, Lord, help us to be that church in whom you dwell, to reflect your glory wherever you place us. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.